Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's 
Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast. Today is Thursday. It is November 30th, the final day of the month, and it's cold again. We had Champions League action to warm us up a little bit last night and warm us up with laughter. Some of it did. In Group A, Manchester United took themselves to Turkey, got themselves a 2-0 lead, got themselves a 3-1 lead, and somehow managed to throw it away. Garnacho puts them one up on 11 minutes, a really nicely worked team goal. Bruno Fernandes scores a screamer on 18, and they look like they're cruising. Hakim Ziyech uh, pulls one back on 29. I I don't know what Onana's doing on that one, but he gets wrong-footed, maybe just doesn't, doesn't catch sight of the ball until late. McTominay puts them 3-1 up on 55, and then Onana just gets another dose of the yips. It's a bad free kick by Zayic. It's an easy save, and somehow Onana scoops it into his own net. Actor Koglu equalizes on 71. I don't think the goalkeeper should get beaten from there. I really just don't think a goalkeeper of any decent quality should get beaten from there. But Beatney does, and it's 3-3. And the last 20 minutes plus stoppage time is more reminiscent of a basketball game than it is of a football match. United, who at 3-1 should have just been killing that game off, become very open and very ragged. Galatasaray, who want to win the game because they're at home and it's important that they win that game to try and secure a spot in the knockouts. They get very ragged. It gets wide open, end to end. Both sides should have scored a couple more goals. United could have had three. Galatasaray could have had two. But in the end, it ends 3-3. In the other game in that group, Bayern Munich drew one. Uh, sorry, drew 0-0 with Copenhagen. Um, Camille Grabara with a very good performance for Copenhagen. So, group table... Bayern, 13 points, they're through. Copenhagen, five points. Galatasaray, five points. Manchester United, three points. United need to win and hope that the other game ends in a draw to get through, and they face Bayern, obviously, in the last game. If either Copenhagen or Galatasaray win their game, it's irrelevant what United do in terms of Champions League progression. A win for United and a win for either Copenhagen or Galatasaray and United will go into the Europa League. But I have to say, as things stand, they look like they're going to finish bottom. They really just do look like they're going to finish bottom of that group. They have been appalling. Three defeats in their five games. They've lost to each of the teams in the group. They've scored 12 goals, which is the most in the group, and conceded 14. How do you concede 14 goals in five games when you've only played Bayern once? I know Bayern scored four in that match, but that's still 10 across the other the other four. And, you know, with the greatest of respect, it's Copenhagen and it's Galatasaray. They're not... Manchester City and Real Madrid, defensively abysmal. 
you just look at this. Conceded four in the first game, three in the second game. Kept a clean sheet home to Copenhagen. Conceded four in Copenhagen and conceded three last night. And if Bayern come in any way in a mood to put an exclamation point on this group, they're going to concede three or four at home. In Group B, Arsenal confirmed themselves as group winners with a very, very impressive 6-0 win over Lens. Havertz, Jesus, Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard, and a late Jorginho penalty giving them the win. And PSV Eindhoven confirmed that they will finish second in this group. They were 2-0 down in Seville. Sergio Ramos and Yusuf En-Naziri had put in Sevilla 2-0 up. Saibari, a Gudelja own goal, and then Ricardo Pepe, the young American striker with a late, late winner to turn the game around. Good win for PSV. Dreadful result for Sevilla, obviously. They are eliminated from Champions League, but they can still advance to the Europa League. But they will need to beat Lons in Lons to advance. Now, the first time these sides played was a 1-1 draw, so there'll be no head-to-head advantage. Simple as, if Sevilla win, they will go through. If they lose or draw, they're out, and Lons will go into the Europa League. In Group C, Real Madrid 4, Napoli 2. Result flattered Real a little bit. Real went, sorry, Napoli went one up through uh, Giovanni Simeone. Rodrigo equalized two minutes later. Jude Bellingham put Real back ahead with a really nicely taken goal. Zambo Anguisa equalized for Napoli just inside, just into the second half. Now, Real did control the second half. And Jocelyn missed a couple of good chances. But young Nico Paz, who's... uh, I think potentially one of the next big Argentine stars, along with Garnacho, uh, funnily enough, both of them born in Spain. Um, he scored his first senior goal, really nicely taken goal. Maybe the goalkeeper should have done a bit better. And then Jocelyn made it four on 94 minutes after good work down the left by Bellingham. In the other game, Braga won, Union Berlin won. Now, what that means is that Real are topping through and they've got 15 points perfect through this part of the group. Napoli have seven, Braga have four, and Union Berlin have two. And in the last game, Napoli take on Braga at home. Braga need to win to go through. Napoli won the first game between the two sides 2-1. So Braga will need to win to, to advance. They need to win by two clear goals to advance. Um, a, a draw does Napoli. I think Napoli at the moment look a fairly safe bet to get through. And Union play at home to Real. They would need to win and have Braga lose for them to advance into the Europa League. In Group D, Real Sociedad and Red Bull Salzburg played out a nil-nil draw. Benfica went 3-0 up in 34 minutes. Inter had sent largely the reserves. 
Jean Mario scores on five, on 13, and again, again on 34. And this looks like it's going to be a very comfortable Benfica game. Benfica win, rather. And potentially, they're going to secure their spot in the Europa League. Or at least put them in a great, put themselves in a great position. Not secure it, sorry. Put themselves in a great position to go into the final game where they're away to Red Bull, knowing that it's simple, that just any win and they're through. Instead, they absolutely butchered themselves in the second half. Arnautovic scores on 51, Fratezi scores on 58, and Alexis Sanchez with a, a penalty on 72 to give Inter the draw. Inter could have won the game after that. But what it means is Real Sociedad top with 11, Inter second with 11. They face each other in the final game. And then Red Bull on four, Benfica on one. Benfica need to win that game by three goals, by three clear goals to advance because Red Bull beat them 2-0 in Lisbon earlier on. Doesn't look likely, frankly. It doesn't look like Benfica can go there and win by three three clear goals. Um, I, I think Red Bull Salzburg are going to be in the Europa League and Benfica are going out, if I'm honest. Uh, so that's the Champions League from last night. We have Europa League and Europa Conference League tonight. Uh, so in the Europa League, in Group A... Freiburg take on Olympiacos and West Ham are away to back at Tupola. They're both 5.45 kickoffs UK time. In Group B, Athens are at home to Brighton and Hovaldian. That's a 5.45 kickoff. Marseille are home to Ajax in an 8pm kickoff. In Group C, Sparta Prague play Real Betis in a 5.45 Rangers host Aris Limassol in an 8pm. Group D, Atalanta home to Sporting. That's a good 5.45 kickoff. Sturmgratz against Rakow, also 5.45. Group E, Liverpool home to Lask, Toulouse home to Union St. Gelos. They're both 8pm kickoffs. Group F, Maccabee Haifa are home to Rennes. And by home, I mean they're playing in Budapest. So obviously no games can take place in Israel at the moment. And Villarreal are at home to Panikonitos. The Maccabee game is 5.45. The Villarreal game is 8pm. In Group G, Servette hosts Roma and Sheriff Tiraspol hosts uh, Slavia Prague. They're both 8pm games. And then finally, Group H, Molda home to Quarabeg, Hacken home to Bayer Leverkusen, both of them are 8 p.m. kickoffs. We've got some good games in the Europa League tonight. I think there's a lot of fun games here. Uh, AEK versus Brighton is a really good one in the early kickoff, as is Atalanta versus Sporting. That's probably the game to watch. Freiburg Olympiacos could be interesting. And then in the 8 p.m. kickoffs, Villarreal Panic and Ithos is probably the pick of them. That's probably the pick of the late kickoffs. Marseille-Ajax will have intrigue, but I mean, they're both awful this season. Like Marseille, 
are, what are they, 14th or something? 12th. They're 12th in the French League. And Ajax have picked things up. They have improved. They're no longer bottom. um, But they're only 8th in the Eredivisie. They're 24 points behind PSV. PSV have won 13 of 13. 24 points behind. 17 behind Feyenoord in second. 14 behind Alkmaar in third. 12 behind 20 in fourth. It is about as bad a season as it can get for Ajax. But like I say, they have turned things around. They've taken 10 points from the last four league games, which has lifted them from the bottom of the table to where they are now, in part because of ineptitude from a lot of the other average to below average teams. But yeah, not not great. So Marseille versus Ajax might seem like a glamour tie. It really isn't. It really isn't. It's a bit grim. It's a bit grim. Now, it might be a fun game, but it's not going to be a good game. Uh, Europa Conference League. So, in Group A, we have Olympia versus Lille and my Faro friends against Slovan Bratislava. They're both 5.45 kickoffs. Group B, uh, Briablik lost 2-1 to Maccabi Tel Aviv yesterday. No, today. That game has just ended. I didn't know that game was even on. That game was just was on. Uh, it was yeah, it was a one PM kickoff. So Bryblick won Maccabee Tel Aviv two. So good win away from Maccabee, uh, who are top of that group. Now Bryblick are bottom and have no points, but still, to go to Iceland and win is, is especially with everything that's going on is is going to be a good result. Uh, we have a five forty five kickoff in that group as well. Ghent versus Zoria Luhansk. In Group C, Astana take on Dinamo Zagreb. That game kicks off uh, around now. And Balkani are playing Victoria Pleasant at 5.45. Group D, Bodo Glimt versus Lugano. And Besiktas versus Club Bruges, both 5.45s. Group E, Azad Alkmaar versus Mostar and Aston Villa versus Legia Warsaw. They're the top two teams in that group. Both have nine points. Legia beat Aston Villa in their first game in the group. I think Villa will be looking for some revenge there. Uh, group F, Fiorentina play Genk and Kukariki take on Ferenc Varos. Both 8 p.m. kickoffs. Uh, I should have stated that the Villa game is at 8 p.m. And the A's at Alkmaar, uh, Zerinsky is a 5.45. Group G, HJK to play Aberdeen. That's a 5.45. Eintracht Frankfurt versus PAOK is an 8 p.m. And finally then, Group H, Nordlesjand against Fenerbahce and Spartak Ternava against Ludogorets. They're both 8 p.m. kickoffs. Um... Astana and Dinamo Zagreb actually kicked off half an hour ago and it is currently nil-nil. So I would say Besiktas versus Bruges is an interesting one, though Besiktas aren't very good. Uh, Fiorentina versus Genk is interesting as an 8pm, as is Villa Legia Warsaw. 
And to be fair, Eintractor are decent watch as well. So you know it'll see on Fenerbahce, you'll be good too. So there's maybe, unless you're watching the Liverpool game, like I like I will be, there's maybe some good games there in the Europa Conference League to watch in the 8 p.m. kickoffs. But without question, the 5.45s, it's the, it's the Europa League that you would want to focus in on because right now it's just, obviously it's the better competition and, this round of games is just a lot of good games on that 5.45. Um, what else? Did, oh, the championship. I wanted to have a quick gander at the championship because we had games in the championship over the last two nights. Coventry beat Plymouth 1-0 on Tuesday with a Hadji Wright goal. West Brom beat Cardiff 1-0 with Jeremy Sarmiento on loan from Brighton. Scoring Middlesbrough hammered. Preston with two from Isaiah Jones, one from Rav Vandenberg, and a late goal from Alex Banguru. Bangura. QPR beat Stoke 4-2, two for Lyndon Dykes, Ben Pearson with an own goal, and Chris Willock. That game looked like it was headed for a draw. And then Stoke capitulated. Um, Vutor Berger is a great name, isn't it? Place for Stoke. It's a fantastic name. Fits in well at Stoke as well. Hull 4, Rotherham 1. Uh, Tyler Morton, Jaden Philogene, who's in on loan from Tyler Morton from on loan from Liverpool, Philogene in from Villa, and Scott Twine, I believe, is in on loan from Burnley. Um, they got the goals. Grant Hall scored for Rotherham. Watford three, Norwich two. Ishmael Kone, good to see him scoring. And Yasser Espria, I do think, is one to keep an eye on. He scored the winner in that game. Those were Tuesday night's games last night. Uh, Sunderland 1, Huddersfield 2. Uh, Luco 9 scoring for Sunderland. Uh, Mikhail Hellick and Delano Bergzog? Bergzorg? Bergzorg. Uh, he scored the winner for Huddersfield. Southampton 1, Bristol 0. Kyle Walker-Peters, who's just too good to be playing in the championship. Blackburn 4, Birmingham 2. Sammy Smodix gets 2. James Hill scores and Harry Leonard scores in the 92nd minute. Uh, Sariki Dembele, formerly of Bournemouth, got two for uh, for Birmingham. Uh, Leeds three, Swansea one. Swansea went one up through Jamie Peterson in the first minute. Joel Perot equalised on four minutes. Jorginho Reuter put Leeds just uh, put Leeds ahead just on the stroke of half time, and then Dan James wrapped it up in the second half. Uh, Sheffield Wednesday won Leicester City won uh, Abdul Fatou 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 I think it's Fatou I I know I had said it right before and I've just completely blanked on how you say it. I think it's Abdul Fatou he scored on 23 minutes I think Cousin Jeff to the rescue with a late goal for Sheffield Wednesday to get them a 1-1 draw and then Ipswich Town, who you really do need to take the opportunity to watch because they're a lot of fun. And Kieran McKenna is a really, really good coach. Uh, Connor Chaplin, Masimu Luangu, and Nathan Broadhead put them 3-0 up. Kevin Nisbet got one back from Millwall. But in the championship, Leicester are top with 43 points. 18 games in, Ipswich are still keeping pace. They're on 42 points. Then it's a seven-point gap to Leeds who are a point ahead of Southampton, who are two points ahead of West Brom, who are two points ahead of Hull. And that completes the playoff picture. But then there's only a two-point gap from Hull to Blackburn, 
and Preston, who themselves are only a point ahead of Cardiff and Middlesbrough, who've really turned things around after a dreadful start to the season. Then it's Sunderland, Bristol, Watford, Norwich in 23rd. It's not going well. Coventry in 22nd, not going great. Birmingham, Stoke, Swansea, Millwall, Plymouth, Huddersfield, QPR, Rotherham, and right down at the foot of the table, already 12 points from safety. There's a six-point gap between Huddersfield in 21st and QPR in 22nd. So as things stand, we might get to the halfway point of the season and already know who's getting relegated. QPR of 13 points, Rotherham of 12. Sheffield Wednesday only have seven points. But that draw at home to Leicester, like I know it's at home, but still against Leicester, that's a great result considering Leicester are top and they're bottom. But they're 12 points from safety already. And it's looking a little bit like both Sheffield teams are staring right at relegation after last season. Both of them got to experience promotion. Um, That'll do us for that. We will go to a quick break. We'll come back. We have questions. And then we'll do the gossip and be done. So I will see you after this. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Right, welcome back. So, uh, first question. This one's from Mikhail. Mikhail, I have not forgotten to do the nostalgia pod on the glory days of the Brazilian national team. Um, But to answer the second part of your question, what do you think needs to happen for Brazil to be successful again in the near future? Well, first things first, they need to appoint an actual manager. Not Denise, who is also managing Fluminense and clearly can't be focused on Brazil all the time because he's got a club job and that is his priority. So that's the first thing they need to do. The second thing they need to do is they need to just start settling in on moving certain players who are no longer fit for purpose out of the way and building a team around some of the incredible young talent that they have, like Vinicius Jr. Like, for me, I just wouldn't be picking Casemiro anymore. He just wouldn't be in the squad anymore. I'd be looking to build around... If you're going to have... Mar- you're going to have Allison in goal, Marquinhos at centre-back, Bruno Gamerish in midfield... Right wing is a question mark. The 10 spot's a question mark. I'm assuming a 4-2-3-1. I wouldn't be picking Neymar anymore either, personally. Just personally, I wouldn't be picking him anymore. Finding the partners for Marquinhos, for Gimerish, 
figuring out who your number nine is going to be. Are you going to stick with Gabriel Jesus, who has not performed well at international level? Or are you going to bring in somebody else? Like I said, you've got uh, Vinicius on the left. I'd be inclined to maybe try Rodrigo in an, for an extended run in the number 10 spot. On the right wing, Rafinha. Maybe you just play Martinelli through the middle and you see how that looks until Endrick is ready. Maybe you give João Pedro the opportunity because I do think his game is well suited if you're going to put goal scorers behind him because he can do that false nine type role. He can play as a 10. So if they go say João Pedro up front, In the 10, you go Rodrigo. Off the left, you go Vinicius. Potentially off the right, Matthias Cunha. For his pace and inventiveness to have him in the team. There are other options, obviously. Like I said, you could go with Rafinha. You could play Martinelli on the right. And I think that could actually be quite interesting because he's so direct. And having him bursting in at the back post to get on the end of delivery from Vinicius could be quite good. Maybe that's it. Maybe Martinelli right, Vinicius left, João Pedro 10, Rodrigo 9. Your midfield pair, I I think Gimerish is an obvious one. The other position is less obvious. I mean, Douglas Louise is playing brilliantly for Aston Villa. Maybe it's him. Him and Gamaris will allow you real control in midfield. I think Andre and Gamaris overlap a little bit too much. And there's only one ball to share between the two of them. Lucas Paqueta. I didn't even think of Lucas Paqueta as the 10 instead of Rodrigo. Martinelli right. Because with Paqueta, he can also drop back in and make a midfield three. Martinelli right, Vinicius left, João Pedro up front. The issue is the defence. Defence is awful at the moment. It's not been helping the fact that Roger Ibanez took took himself off to play in the Middle East and isn't playing against good calibre opposition. And for me, if you're playing in that league, you shouldn't be getting called up to your international team. Edder Militao being injured is obviously a huge blow as well. The other big blow is there just isn't particularly good Brazilian fullbacks at the moment. I quite like Jan Couto, who's at Girona. Quite like him, but he's not elite. I like Vanderson. He's not elite. Maybe they can get there. I do very much like Robert Renan. I I do very much like him. And I quite like Arthur, but he's at Leverkusen. And he's going to be waiting for his chance because Frimpong is in incredible form. Now, he was signed basically to replace Frimpong whenever he leaves. So it'll be a while before he's ready. So if you can go... Maybe you go 
Marquinhos, Brendan Lodi's probably the best option for left back at the moment. I think I would look to try and get Robert Renan into that team next to Marquinhos. But there's no there's no commanding Brazilian centre back at the moment either. They're all sort of six foot six one. There's nobody that's that big, powerful, dominant type. I mean, Nino's the tallest player, the tallest centre back in the squad at the moment. At six two. Gabriella's the same same height. Bremer could be that player, but he's a he's just a bit too rash for me. Same with Gabriel. Uh, from Arsenal. It's a bit too rash. So you've, you've got to try and sort sort that back four out. Before you do anything, you've got to sort that out. The attack, there's options. The midfield, there's options. Are they great? No. But there's some fantastic young Brazilians on the horizon. Young Andre Santos at, well, he's owned by Chelsea. He's at Forest on loan. I think he's a huge talent. You know, Estevão in a couple of years. There's the kid who is going to Barcelona. Uh, is it Victor Roque? Yeah, Victor Roque. He's he's I think going to be a star. But it, it's going to be. I think it's a long road for them. I think by the time they're good enough to really compete for a World Cup. Allison will no longer be the goalkeeper and Marquinhos won't be the won't be the captain and sent and starting centre back or vice captain, I think he is. Yeah, because Casemiro's the Casemiro's the captain. Like, come on. What is this? Um I think realistically they're looking at the World Cup in 2030 before they're going to be really competitive. And by then Vinicius will be 30. So 29, maybe 30, but yeah, I, I think it's a long road for them. I really do. I think they need to get back to back to basics and stop stop pandering to people. I mean, they've pandered to Neymar for years, and they'll continue to do so. But for me, he'd just be out. Superbly talented player. He's too much of a distraction. And he's always injured. And in tournaments, he gets injured. So you can't rely on him. Uh, moving on to Discord, where we have a few. Now, I know somebody tried to send me one on Twitter the other day, and I saw their first tweet um, trying to get my attention, and I missed it. Um, Alex, actually, I'll take this one off Twitter. Can you rebuild the following team featuring my top defense midfield and attacking units of the early 2000s using active players? He's also asked me to do a rebuild of Leon with the only budget being the sales of current players. I'll do that next week because that will take a bit of time. But to rebuild this team, so we've got Gigi Buffon in goal. I mean, there's nobody that's of his level. Alison Becker is the best goalkeeper in the world, but he's a different type of goalkeeper to Gigi. 
Gigi's a lot more of like the traditional goalkeeping style. So I think if I was to replace Gigi with anybody active, I'd probably go with Thibaut Courtois. Uh, Cafu, Nesta, Costa Curta, and Maldini. So replacing Cafu will go Ashraf Hakimi. Replacing Maldini is absolutely impossible. Um, let me come back to him. Costa Curta, I would go Marquinhos as the best to replace him, and Nesta, Virgil van Dijk. So Hakimi, Marquinhos, van Dijk. For a left back, I mean, stylistically only, I'm not saying level, stylistically only. I'd be inclined to say Josco Gvardiol, maybe, but he's not as quick as Maldini was. He's certainly not as good a defender as Maldini was. He's not as good. No, actually, do you know what? I'm not going to pick him. I'll go Goncalo Inacio. He just, build-wise, he's more similar. Same kind of size, same kind of speed. Not as good a ball carrier, but obviously a very good pass. I'll just go with him. That's very hard. Maldini's one of one. Uh, Midfield. Your midfield is my midfield. Stankovic, Nedved, Simeone and Varon. We're putting Trent in for Varon. We're putting Manuel Ugarte in for Diego Simeone. We're putting Dominic Zabozlai in for Nedved and for Stankovic. I'm inclined. No, he's more of a dribbler. I'm inclined to say Rodrigo DePaul. To be honest, I think I'll go Rodrigo de Paul. Uh, Totti and Batistuta. Um, Batistuta, he's, he's not there yet. He's a, he's, a, he's a long way short, but Rasmus Hoysland has has parts of that in his game. Big, powerful rocket launcher of a shot. But he's a long way off the, the, the Batistuta kind of level. Darwin obviously plays for Liverpool and has that power and the pace, but doesn't have the composure and doesn't have the ball striking ability. Like with, with Batistuta, the ball would just explode off his foot. Um, no, I was gonna. Mm. I mean, he doesn't have the speed. Do you know if you could combine Ollie Watkins and Ivan Tony into one player, you'd probably have something similar to Batistuta. Um, 
but I'll go with Hoysland, but again, it's it's a long way down the line as to when he'll get there, if he gets there. Totty is another one of one, I think. Um, but I, I would say maybe what Jude Bellingham is doing at Real Madrid is somewhat comparable to what Totty did at Roma in that second striker type of role. And just on the Jude role, like it, it's important to stop sometimes and appreciate when a manager actually does something quite innovative. Because too often people get caught up in lauding managers who are just regurgitating things from the past. But I have to say, I genuinely don't remember a manager using a midfield player the way Carlo is using Jude and the way he's setting his team up to maximise Jude. So... Carlo has often been criticised for not being the best tactician in the world. Everybody knows he's a great man-manager, he's a great motivator, and he's a great massager of ego. But he's often been criticised as not being the best tactically. But the way he's setting Real up, he's using Jude almost like a reverse false nine. We know the false nine position. They drop out, bring a defender with them, create space in behind, and the wide players burst into that space, and that's the formula. But with Real, Carlo is starting two wingers as his strikers, and he's having them split wide. Oftentimes, they'll even both go to the same flank, where if it's, say, Rodrigo and Brahim Diaz last night, there was moments where Rodrigo would shift right over to the left wing and Brahim would go from right-sided forward to left-sided forward and open up the space where the left-side centre-back would normally be, but now isn't because he's gone wandering after Brahim and Jude would move into that space. It happens the other way as well. Sometimes they'll just both split really wide. And even if the centre-backs don't go with them, they'll often hedge. And if both centre-backs hedge two yards, one way left, one way right, that's a four-yard gap that's open in the middle. And Jude is the one breaking into that space to take advantage of it. So rather than having the central player drop into midfield and the wingers move narrow, he's having the strikers move wide and the midfielder burst into that central spot. And it's really, really interesting. And it's absolutely been vital to their survival with no striker in the team. Jude is obviously hitting a ridiculous hot streak right now, and it's not going to be sustainable. But the, the tactical moves that Carlo has made really have been fascinating to watch especially in the absence of certain key players, Vinicius, Militao, and obviously Thibaut Courtois as well. Um, so i go Jude in that totty number 10 role, kind of off a striker. I think Jude is the, is the answer. Um, yeah, if I could just, if I could just, Get Ollie Watkins and Ivan Tony and make one striker out of them. That's 
going to be similar enough to Batistuta. You get the pace and the power of Watkins. You get the power, the touch, and the ball striking ability of Ivan Tony. They're still not going to be, it's still not going to be a player as good as Batistuta, but it'll be close. Um, on to, and I will do that Leon one next week. Um, on to Discord. And apologies to whoever it was that tweeted me, and I liked the tweet, and then I didn't see the follow-up for what the question was going to be. Um, Right. Isaac Gilding. I wasn't sure where to put this, but 10-year retrospect of you and Trev did was absolute class. I've been listening in one or another for years. Taking AI all over the world is truly valuable. Hope Trev hears this too. I know he listens. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the most enjoyable thing any of us do. And we we only do it because there's a great group of people that listen. So thank you very much. Um, a question for Thursday's pod without necessarily making 11 of each, although if you want to, go ahead. If a team of high-level all-rounders played a team of high-level single-use players... Who do you think would win and how do you think it would play out? Oh, I won't do 11s. But I do think a team of all-rounders would beat a team of single, like one skill type players. Like, if you look at, let's just say midfield, for example, Declan Rice is a bit of an all-rounder. He's not a, a specific master of any midfield position, but he can play multiple midfield positions. So can Gamerish. So can Lucas Paqueta. And like, if you put those three together in a midfield, I think that midfield matches up incredibly well against, let's say... KDB, Rodri, and Christian Eriksen. Eriksen as your controller, Rodri as your sitter, and KDB as your attacker. Whereas if I have Rice who can, you know, who can sit, who can go box to box, who can just be a roaming ball winner, if I have Gamerish who can sit, who can play a little higher, who can be a controller, and I have Paqueta, who can play as the attacking midfielder, play wide, but can also play deep in a double pivot if I need him to. I quite fancy my midfield to beat your midfield. Defensively, I mean, you know, you you would look at, say, Van Dijk, pure centre-back. William Saliba, pure centre-back. And that would be a good partnership. But my single-use full-backs are going to be, let's just say, like a Cesar Aspilicueta and an Aaron Juan Basaka. They're just going to be defenders. Whereas if I have a Trent and, let's say, a David Alaba, 
either side of a centre-back pairing that is Jean-Claire Tadebo can play centre-back, can play right-back, can play in midfield, and Mickey van de Ven, who can play centre-back or left-back. I think the defence with Trent in it is going to, and, and Alaba is going to be better, not as a defence, but as a unit of play, then the defence of just defenders is going to be as a unit of play. Um, and then in attack, like again, if I if I have say Haaland, strictly a striker. Um, if I have Kulisewski, strictly a winger, and if I have oh. Let's just say Jeremy Doku, again, strictly a winger. Is that going to be a better front three than, let's say, Neymar, who can be a winger or 10, Mbappe, who can be a a nine or a winger, and let's just say Mohamed Salah who can play wide or through the middle. And I, I've picked Neymar to be fair, because I'm, I'm dumbing it down a little bit because the player I would have picked would be say like Raphael Liao who can play nine and through the middle or Jude, for example, what if I had Jude as my, as my nine and Salah and Mbappe either side of him. Is the is the Haaland team better than that? I don't think it is. So I think I think a team of all-rounders, a team of lads that can play multiple positions, is always going to be better than a team of lads that do just play one position. Now, with that being said, in a normal team, there are certain specialists that you need. And the defensive midfield role is one of them. I do think centre-back, you'll get good centre-backs, very good centre-backs who can also play full-back, but I do think a specialist will always be better. Like Virgil is always going to be better than, uh, let's just say, uh, a Josco Gvardiol who can play centre-back or left-back. Or or an Nathan Aki, you know? Virgil's going to be a better centre-back than they are. Um. Well, the old saying is that a jack-of-all-trades is a master of one, but still better. Sorry, a jack-of-all-trades is a master of none, but still better than a master of one, in that they can do more for you than a guy who's just specifically doing one job. Um, I do actually want to think about that, though. I like it. I kind of did do the teams, didn't I? Um, goalkeepers would just have to be goalkeepers, though. Uh, Matt JT, can you give a current dickhead 11 players you potentially take in your team but wouldn't want because they would fail the dickhead test? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can, would you believe? Um, goalkeeper now. I think he, he qualifies Thibaut Courtois. And I would point you to Kevin De Bruyne 
And just just look up Thibaut Courtois, Kevin De Bruyne. That's why I would say he's probably a bit of a dickhead. But he's a great goalkeeper. Uh, Centre-backs. Um... Oh, that's tough. Let's get the obvious ones out of the way. Kylian Mbappe. You would absolutely take him, but he, he probably failed the dickhead test. Um, I have a suspicion that Phil Foden would fail the dickhead test as well but he's a tremendous player. Garnacho strikes me as a dreadful gang of lads, but he's a wonderful player. I think he's got a big, big future as long as he doesn't get the United curse. So there's my front three. Foden right, Mbappe through the middle, Garnacho left. Now you could go Lewandowski, who does strike me as a bit of a dickhead, but he's probably not. He's probably a nice guy. Midfield. Rodri just, I don't know what it is. He just strikes me as a bit of a dickhead. There's like a, there's just something about him that, that rubs me the wrong way. So I'll go him and either side of him is going to be Bruno Fernandes and Bernardo Silva, who absolutely would fail the test. But they're incredible players. In defence. Left back. Mm, That's probably a bit harsh. Left back, I'll go Teo Hernandez. Left side centre back, I might go his brother, Lucas. Next to him at centre-back, I'm inclined. I'm inclined to say William Saliba. I I just think he might be a bit of a dickhead. At right-back, Kyle Walker. Kyle Walker, definitely. Definitely. Like a founding member of Pep's parcel. And Thibaut Courtois on goal. Uh, AMK2889. Below is a list of players that range from being retired on the very tail end of their careers or have actually taken a managerial position. It is a decent-sized list. So if you don't want to do them all, I understand. If you can go through them and voice if you think each player has what it takes to be a manager once their career ends, if you go into detail about what type of success you can see them having a top-class manager. Okay, okay, let's have a look. Right, we will start with Joaquin. I don't see Joaquin becoming a manager. I could see Joaquin becoming a coach or potentially working in some sort of like technical director type of role, but I don't think he'll become a, a manager. Santi Gazzola, I think, will become a manager, and I think he'll be quite a decent one. Santi's someone that really does think about the game in quite a deep way, and I think he'd fit in with your Alonzos of this world. Um, It's impossible to know whether he could become a top-class manager because it is just all a guessing game. It's also what opportunities opportunities he gets 
but I think he'd be a good manager. Likewise, I think David Silva could be a very good manager. That calm persona, that hyper-intelligence on the pitch, and everything you hear about David Silva as a person is always very positive. So I think he actually, as I look down this list, he's the one that's standing out to me who I think would be the best manager of the whole bunch. Pepe Reina, I don't think he'll become a manager. I just don't. Manuel Nauer, um, maybe, but I've always thought with him, he might get the same kind of affliction that a lot of other great players have had, where they'll get overly frustrated when the players they're managing aren't as good as they were. So I don't think he'd be a good manager. Um, Chiellini. Kind of hope he becomes a manager. But I, I don't think he will. Uh, Sesk is making his first steps. And I think Sesk has the, the right, like with Silva, the right mindset and the right type of footballing intelligence to make it work. Modric, I would say the same. Uh, Tony Cruz, I'm not sure he loves football, so I don't think he will. I don't think he'd have, I don't think he, like he loves to play, but I don't know that he would love the, the grind of being the manager, so I'll say no. Raul Albiol, I think, will become a manager. I don't think he'll become a great manager, but I think he could be quite good. Sergio Ramos has completely the wrong temperament for manager, management. Uh, Thiago Alcantara, I think, actually, he's the one that would rival Silva the most. Because he grew up in football as well. His dad was a pro. His brother's a pro. Incredibly intelligent player. Unbelievably good mindset. And he's already shown on multiple occasions that he does have that sort of coaching instinct in him. Jesus Navas would be a maybe for me. Uh, I think Thiago Silva will become a manager, and I don't think he's going to be any good. I couldn't tell you whether Paolo Guerrero would be a good manager. Makoto Asabi, I couldn't tell you. Diego Godin, I could see being a good manager. Because if you look back at young Godin and the way he had to adapt his personality and calm his temper, and the way he became an on-field manager, learning under Simeone, I I think he'd be good. He'd be a very... I think he'd be very Simeone-esque in the way he'd play. Luis Suarez wouldn't deal well with the pressure. He'd end up biting somebody. Pepe is too much of a loose cannon. Benucci, I don't think, would want the grind of it, if I'm honest. I just don't think he'd want... I think he might try it, and I think he will will soon find it's not for him. Thomas Muller would be a sporting director, I think, more so than a manager. Mark Noble is obviously a sporting director. I don't think he's much good, but he's West Ham, so they've given him the job. But I, I, I don't think I've been harsh there. I don't think he's going to be a good sporting director in terms of the recruitment side. I do think he could be quite good in terms of if they split that run. They kind of have split it because Tim Steeten is there and he takes care of the recruitment. So if it's the day-to-day running of the football side of things overseeing stuff, not necessarily being a decision maker, then I do think Mark Noble could be quite good because he does have that business qualification that he got. 
And I think he'd be he's he's going to be quite a good organizer and arranger as he was as a player. Um, I'm not sure Seamus Coleman is outgoing enough to be a manager. I don't think Leighton Baines would want it, to be honest. He walked out of a World Cup squad because he didn't want to be away from his family. I don't think he'd want the grind of being a manager, like at the highest level, and working 16, 17-hour days when things get tough. Danny Agar has obviously made his first steps in management. Um, he is the manager of HB Koga. Um, oh, he was, he's not anymore. Excuse me. He's not anymore. I don't know how it went, to be honest. Um, he left the club by mutual consent after two seasons. I, I don't know how that went. I genuinely don't. Uh, they're in the Danish first division, which is the second division of Danish football. They finished eighth last season. Eighth from 12 teams. They didn't get into the promotion group playoff. They were in the relegation group playoff, but they stayed up. Um Stayed up quite comfortably. The season before under Agar, they finished seventh and missed out on the promotion group by goal difference, uh, but again, stayed up very comfortably. Um, <clears throat> with Daniel Agar, I feel like he might have too many interests to fully commit himself. I feel like that might be the case. I could see him being the president of a club someday and being quite good in that role. Jan Vertonghen, I think, could be a manager. Seems to have the right mindset. Zlatan is the worst option on this list to become a manager. That ego would not work. Juan Mata, I mean, look, there's all these diminutive Spanish players. They're all going to become managers and they'll probably all be fairly decent. I don't think Messi could become a manager. I just don't think he could. Cristiano would be awful as a manager. Mesut Ozil is interesting. Mesut Ozil might be a bit... Now, he's not, I don't think, but I think he might be viewed as a bit too controversial with some of the... You know, the fact that he wants people to have human rights, I think would rub people up the wrong way. The fact that Mesut Ozil wants to stand up to oppressors, I think would upset the apple cart a bit too much. Of, of this list, the ones that stand out to me are Cazorla, Silva, Sesk, Modric, Thiago, and Diego Godin. I think they're the ones most likely to have success as a manager. I could be completely wrong, but they're the ones that stand out to me. The Mauritian won. After taking over from Saki in 91-92, we saw Capello's pragmatic approach to him back-to-back Scudettos. Even with the success, he moved towards his own philosophy in 93-94, replacing Rijkaard with Desai and prioritizing defense. Their Champions League win over Royce Barca is well known. But clinching back-to-back Scudetto, but clinching the Scudetto that year by conceding 15 and scoring 36 is something I did not know until yesterday. 36 goals for and 15 goals against is mind-boggling. 
How do you remember that version of Milan? How they set up their key players and the functions of the team? I re- remember it quite well. I, I often delve in to that team, the Capello version, as well as the Saki version and the Bridge version that you've you've referenced initially. I've done. Did I do? Did I do a nostalgia on that era of Milan? Um, regardless. Um, who would win if they face each other? I believe that the early Capello team, which was the Saki team, really, would beat the latter team because they had the same back four. They had Rijkaard and Albertini as opposed to Desai and Albertini. Now, Desai and Albertini were incredible together. But they had Hullet, they had Van Basten. The latter year's team didn't have the same attacking prowess because Hullet was gone and Van Basten got injured. Now, they did have Savicevic, who was outstanding. They did have um, Marco Simeone, Daniel Massaro. They had good forward players, but not great forward players. Now, they were slightly improved in midfield because I think Boban was a better player than Colombo. Colombo was very good, though. Now, Colombo was probably gone by the time. Let me see. I'm thinking more Saki's team than Capello's first team. Ivani was playing a fair bit. Carlo was still playing. Albertini had come in. He did bring in Boban in that first season. Just didn't didn't play a whole bunch because you could only play three foreigners. So the three Dutch lads were going to be the three foreigners. Um, but if you look at the like the defense is the same, but it's a couple of years older now, which is a positive with Maldini, and you could argue with Costa Curta as well. Though I think he was just, I think he was just born. As an eight out of ten, and he he probably still wherever he is today, whatever Billy Costa Curta is doing right this moment, he's doing it at an eight out of ten level. You can be certain of it. Tassotti and Baresi in particular were older and had declined a little bit by the latter year. Um, Donadoni, Albertini, Rijkaard, Navani was the midfield in that early iteration. Even late Frank, and that's that's late era Frank, kind of he's 29, 30 that season. That's still a really, really special player. Desai was great, but he was never as good as Rijkaard. Albertini is probably better in 93, 94 than he was in 91, 92, but he was still great in 91, 92. Donadoni, on the other hand, wasn't as good by 93, 94. But they had brought in, at that time, Boban had come into the team to replace Ivani. Um, yeah. I mean, Hullet was playing here, there, and everywhere that year. Often in midfield, sometimes wide, sometimes central. Sometimes he'd play up, well, a lot of the time he'd play up front. 
I think the early team beats them, to be honest. I think the early team beats the later team. Um, if you look at the later team, though, like the shape is very, very similar. It's still it's still the Saki shape. It's the 4-4-2 that becomes a four-box two, where the two wide midfielders move centrally, but not always at the same time. And one of the great things about Donadoni was that he was a natural wide player, whereas Colombo and Boban and Ivani, they all preferred to play more centrally. They all wanted to come in field and influence the game, whereas Donadoni wanted to play wide, but he could come in field and influence games. But the other thing they'd often do is it would often, especially in the Saki era, you'd have Colombo would, would literally slide in, form a midfield three, and Donadoni would take up almost a free roll and he'd flip from wing to wing. That was something that was abolished under Capello um, when he got Boban in the team and he wanted them to stay on their sides because he wanted them to be more solid defensively. Capello dropped the defensive line probably five yards and made them more compact, sat his holding midfielders a bit deeper, Rijkaard, when he was playing next to first Ancelotti and then um, and then Al- Albertini, he would often, even though he was the defensive midfielder, he would often have license to get forward and to join attacks because they knew with his athleticism he was going to be able to get back. Plus, you already have Carlo and then Demetrio sitting in, both of whom very, very strong defensive players, comfortable ball winners, so they could afford to be that little bit more adventurous. Oftentimes when Rijkaard would go, Colombo would, would, would hang back and just form a two. So you'd still have your base of two. If I feel like Capello gave Tassotti a lot less license to get forward as well. Now, he was never a great attacking player, but he was kind of like a bit Gary Neville-esque going forward, where he was a good crosser, but he was a really clever recycler of the ball and he'd always be available for a pass. And I feel like Capello kind of locked him in a bit more as a, you stay at right back and don't budge. And it was just Maldini then that was allowed to get forward. So by doing that and having Donadoni often play on that side with, with, um, with Tassotti behind him, Donadoni held that wing by himself and Maldini could could create with Boban down his side. Those are great teams. Those are genuinely great teams. Like that, that 93-94 season is an absolute masterpiece from Capello. Like, and, and it shouldn't be dismissed at all. To win the European Cup the way they did, destroying the dream team to win the league the way they did with that defensive record. Like they scored 36 goals in 34 games and still their goal difference was plus 21. Like if we look up and down that table, Roma scored less than them. They, they finished seventh. They scored 35 goals, and their goal difference was plus five. Genoa scored less than them. They scored 32. 
Goal difference minus eight. Finished 11th. Reggiana, Piacenza, Udinese, Atalanta and Lecce all scored less than them. They're the bottom five. Goal differences, minus eight, minus 11, minus 13, minus 30 and minus 44. Like, Atalanta scored one goal less. One goal less conceded 50 goals more. (laughs) Scored one less, conceded 50 more. It was a ludicrous team. Like, that is ludicrous to have a plus 21 goal difference when you've only scored 36 goals. Now, we've seen other teams. Obviously, Mourinho's Chelsea were incredible. Their goal difference was bananas, but they could score a lot. But this almost seemed like some sort of social experiment for Capello. Like, how many... One nil wins can we have? How many times do we like can we get by just scoring one goal? Remember, they one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times that season they didn't score a single goal. Now, luckily for them, in eight of them, the opponents didn't score either. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve times that year they scored one goal. Twenty-two games in a season scoring one or less goals, and you still win the league. That is outrageous. That is absolutely outrageous. And in 20 of them, the opponent didn't score either. It's just silly. The only team, sorry, the only teams, two teams scored two or more against them that year. Udinese in the third last game of the season and Sampdoria who beat them 3-2. Udinese was a 2-2 draw. Sampdoria beat them 3-2. The funniest thing about that season, though, is you look at it, they won the league by three points. They took 50 points from their 31st four games, two points per win. They didn't win any of their last six games. They lost two and drew four of them because they had the title wrapped up. If they had just continued to play at that level, like in those last six games... They also conceded five goals, which is completely out of whack with what they've done the rest of the season. They were conceding less than 0.5 goals per game. And yet in this six-game run, they concede five goals a game, which is 0.87. They almost doubled their goals against per game in those last six because the title was won. But they were just a remarkable team. But I still think that 91-92 team, because that 91-92 team still had it still had the fingerprints of Arrigo Saki on it. 
And it's not to take away from Capello, who is on is right up the top of my list of all-time managers. But Christ, they had been so good under Saki. The the back-to-back European Cups, phenomenal achievement given the competition at the time. So many of those players had made their name under Saki. Capello didn't have have to do a whole lot. I mean, his notable addition, <clears throat> two notable additions, although they're not his notable additions because uh, Giuliani was in charge, not Giuliani. <laughs> why am I thinking of Rudy Giuliani? I don't know why Rudy Giuliani popped into my head. But the two notable additions to the squad, regardless, are Dimitri Albertini. He does come in and start. And Zonimir Boban who simply isn't allowed to play because of the um, three-foreigner rule. And like Albertini had been there before. He'd broken into the team under, like broken in, he played two games under Saki, and then he got loaned out to Padova. So the only actual addition into the squad who would become notable for them is Boban. And he doesn't become notable for another year. But like they won the title unbeaten in 91-92. They only conceded 21 goals. So even and they scored 74. So even in the the more free-flowing era, their defense was still otherworldly. Like 21 goals conceded while scoring 74. That to me is more impressive. And going unbeaten as well. That, to me, is more impressive. That, to me, is the best Milan team. Rossi, Tassotti, Costa Carta, Baresi, Maldini, Donadoni, Albertini, Rijkaard, Van Basten, Hullet, and then Massaro and Ivani, kind of the 12th and 13th players. One of them was always, often both of them were in the team. But one of them was always in the team. And like Ancelotti was still a, a important uh, squad player. Diego Fuser was a very important squad player who I thought I thought he was going to be the one that would replace Ivani, take that position. Because when you look back, like Ivani was a good player, but wasn't on the same level. He did leave in 93. He wasn't the same level as, as the other Milan players. He was a really good squad player, but not a starter. Diego Fuser, it's always just disappointed me that he always just fell short of what his ability could be. And he was gone after that season. Went on to have a great career with Lazio. But I, I thought he was going to establish himself. But in the end, it was Boban. Boban would come in and... Um, I think huge credit needs to go to Silvio Berlusconi, who was a dreadful gang of lads uh, in terms of his uh, political stuff and all the rest. A dreadful gang of lads. But what he did at Milan, I think, is, is absolutely incredible. What he built at AC Milan 
I think is is amazing. And he was obviously going to try and not do the same thing because there isn't the same scope for it with Monza. But to bring Monza up into the top flight and to work the way they have worked, um, Galliani is who I meant to say earlier, not Giuliani. Uh, Galliani as his sort of, as the football man. Berlusconi as the the figurehead, the face and voice of it all. Certainly the minister for propaganda and the money. And then Galliani as the guy who did the football stuff. And he it was responsible for building the Saki team. He built the Capello teams. He built the Ancelotti teams. Unbelievable, the career that fella had. 29 trophies in 31 years during his time running uh, Milan. And I, I think he's done a really good job with Monza as well. He's just one of those guys, 79, still sharp as attack. He just understands the game. And he, he knows the player. Like, with a lot of those guys that were kind of CEO level, they wouldn't have had the day-to-day involvement. He did. He was involved in all of the scouting, all of the recruitment. And he just he just knew a player when he saw him. If you look back at some of the buys he made from Milan, incredible. But I've gone off to- off topic. Um, anyway, yeah. So what I remember of the ladder Milan team, similar shape, different approach. Get a goal, shut up shop, game over. See the game out. They became a lot better at managing the game. As Albertini developed and became better at the controlling side of the game, they became better at managing the game. And obviously, Brazy's age, they didn't want to be playing kind of any kind of end-to-end stuff. They wanted to be able to limit how much defensive work he was he was forced to do. But yeah, two unbelievable teams, and two even with the same, largely the same individuals, t- two totally different approaches. Uh, that's it. That is our questions for today. So we will do gossip. Um, da, 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 da. <laughs> Leon have sacked Fabio Grosso after seven games in charge. Uh, he was sacked. Lauren Blanc started the season. Um, he was sacked. Now this guy's sacked. And Pierre Sage will take over on a temporary basis. Look, Fabio Grosso, it was just... You're, you're, you're going to take the job at, Le- at Leon because Leon are a top club. Like, they're a big, big club. And he played there. He had an affinity for the club. And he was in search of a job, having left uh, Fresnone. Um, but they were such a mess. Such a mess when he took over. that it, like That's why Alex has asked that question that I'll do next week. I wonder, might I, might I convince Carl Matchett to help me rebuild Leon on a scouted pod? But... They're just, they they shouldn't be this bad. They really shouldn't be this bad. 
But you look at the, the table and it is just a catastrophe. Like they're bottom of the division. Seven points. They've won one of 12. Seven points. Now, fortunately for them, Claremont Foot, terrible. Laurent, terrible. Toulouse, terrible. Strasbourg, not particularly good. Montpellier, not particularly good. Marseille, not particularly good. Nantes aren't particularly good. And Rennes aren't particularly good this season. Even Metz and Le Havre, who are eighth and ninth, so, you know, just inside the top half, they're only nine points clear of Lyon. And Lyon still have plenty of time to turn this around. And if they could put together a run, they did win their first game recently. Credit to Brasso. He took, I think, five of their seven points across the last five games. Um, If they could turn it around and have a, a bit of a run where, let's say in a five-game span, they won two, lost two, and drew one, they'd probably find themselves sitting 13th or 14th in the league because everybody else around them is pretty inept. So it's not all doom and gloom for Leon, though their fans would have you believe that it's the end of the earth as they know it. Um, which for them, for those that grew up in the, in the 2000s, uh, it probably is because, uh, you know, a lot of them grew up when Leon were winning everything. Uh, on to the gossip. The sale of Mohamed Salah could open the door for Liverpool to sign Kylian Mbappe. Yeah, no, just, just definitely not. Uh, Mbappe remains committed to PSG this season and there's no indication of any interest in Liverpool. This is an exclusive by Jack Talbot who has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. What he's done here is he's looked at the situation and thought the most likely outcome is that Liverpool do not sign him. him. So that's what he's written. He also understands that Mbappe wants to leave on a free if he's going to leave so he can control where he goes and how much money he gets. So he's said, oh, he's committed to PSG. He's committed to the end of the season because he's got a contract. But you, Jack Talbot, you are a spoofer. Argentina striker Arturo Martinez is expected to sign a new contract with Inter Milan despite being linked with both Chelsea and Manchester United. That's the smart thing for him to do. Aston Villa are prepared to listen to offers for Leander Dendonker, who has been monitored by Everton. I don't know if he makes much sense for Everton, but you know yourself. Everton and Crystal Palace are interested in Leicester City's 22-year-old Irish midfielder, Casey McAteer. I do quite like him. He's a good player. Um, Tottenham may reject offers for Denmark midfielder, Pierre-Emil Hoysberg, and English midfielder, Ollie Skip. With Rodrigo Bentoncourt ruled out until February with an ankle injury, that tackle by Maddie Cash is just a horror show. And Bentoncourt was not long back from that torn ACL. It Awful. AC Milan will look to ease their central defensive problems by signing Jakob Kivor on loan from Arsenal in January. I don't think Arsenal would let him go on loan. I don't think they'd let him go full stop. Chelsea are prepared to recall Andre Santos as they are not happy with his loan situation at Nottingham Forest. That makes sense, to be fair. Um, he's only played once, and he's very, very talented, and there's big hopes for him in the future. 
Barcelona want to extend Joe Canseo's loan deal until 2025 because they've got no money to buy him. So they're going to hope City take some pity on them. Aston Villa have identified Lons midfielder Salis Abdul Samed as the potential replacement. Should they be forced to sell Douglas Louise? Well, there'd be nobody that forces them to sell Douglas Louise. They'll make a decision to sell him if someone's willing to overpay. But I don't think uh, I don't think he'll be a replacement option for them. Um, Nottingham Forest manager Steve Cooper has the full support of owner Evangelis Maranakis. Now, last season we had the same situation with the Daily Mail, who seemed to have it in for Steve Cooper, writing stories about how he was in the brink of the sack, and then John Percy, who's the best journalist to cover the Midlands coming out, confirming that there is, in fact, no real risk at the moment, but improvement is expected. Um, and the Daily Mail won't even acknowledge that they were wrong. And by, and by wrong, I mean that they made something up and put it out there, because that's what they do. Uh, right, folks, that'll do. I will talk to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.